You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Åsi Lappegolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And it is my pleasure to welcome Anne Smith back to the House of Literature tonight. Every new book by Smith is an event in itself, and perhaps even more so when you learn, learn that she's writing a seasonal quartet, which means we have two more coming. Uh, and starting with autumn in 2016 and winter last year, both critically acclaimed books. Autumn, which was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, was published this year as Höst, in Mireta Alvsen's brilliant translation. And here in Norway, two critics have praised it as a novel for our time. Autumn has been dubbed a post-Brexit novel. That is in many ways a simplification. As Maria Horvay wrote in her review in Klassekampen, Smith can school anyone when it comes to weaving art and politics together. Because the meaning of art, of literature and the imaginative mind and the role it can play in the dark autumnal days, such as these, is central in this book, as in several of Smith's earlier novels. In both autumn and winter, hope, warmth, sensuality, and humanity is articulated as a contrast to political lies and cowardice, and art is portrayed as a path to a truer and more beautiful and sharper understanding of the world. Another writer who explores art and human relations as a way to find truth is Lynn Ullmann. And we are so happy that she is here tonight to lead the conversation with Alice Smith on stage. So please give them both a warm welcome. So many people. Ali, welcome. Coming. Thank you, you. You just got off the plane, literally. Literally, oh. about, about an hour ago, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I've seen lots of Oslo. <laughs> so now it's a matter of landing. But I see you have a new museum coming, a new museum coming, so that's very exciting. You know, that's... That, Good. Yeah. Well, you have yeah. a time to... And a new yeah. library. Yeah. yeah. But you won't have time to check that out this time. No, I know. Because you're leaving again tomorrow, yeah. and it's yeah. not there yet. Yeah. It's not open yet. <laughs> Um, Next me, time. Let me give you water. Thank you. Um, okay. So, personally, I can't believe I'm even on the stage, as I said to Lynn, with Lynn Ullman. Oh. So, yeah. oh. Yeah. Yeah. The honor is all mine, yeah. Ali. Um, uh, I, I, the la- we were going to meet. Uh, last summer, yes. and we were going to talk about your, the novel that came before this one, before Autumn, and we're going to talk about how to be both, yeah. uh, which I love. And now, today, we're going to talk about Autumn and the quartet, okay. the seasonal quartet, mm. and, uh, but mostly about Autumn, because that just came out. Um, and I, I wanted to start by asking why... why why a seasonal quartet? Why? What is it about the seasons, and why did you want to write it? I was writing how to be both, 
And uh, it was very late into the publisher. Uh, it was a year late, really. I'd promised them for the year before, and I was a year late. But I had a very big tax bill coming up. And I, and I really had to hand in a book so that I would be paid a month ahead. So by the end of June, I had to have handed in a book so I could pay the July bill. So I handed in the book to, to my publisher, and, um, and I said, I'm so sorry that I've missed all your deadlines. <laughs> and they said, you haven't missed our deadlines. We can still meet our deadlines. And I was surprised, because how to be both is a complicated structure of a book uh, in that if you take it off a shelf, you might take one off and it'll have one half at the mm. beginning, and you might take what you think is the same book off the shelf and it will have another half at the beginning. It's a, it's a book that asks for a little, a little bit of complexity in the making. Um, but sure enough, it took the publisher six weeks to publish a book which I had given them so late in, in this complex form, really beautifully. So I was shocked because normally uh, at home it takes about 18 months, at least nine months, but about 18 months for a book to come to press after you hand in the manuscript. Mm. And I was like, why would we have to wait that long all the time for books? So then I said to my publisher, I've, for a long time I've had this notion in my head that I want to write four books named after the seasons, which in the end will make up one book. I don't know what form the one book will take, because the four books will be separate, but it will make up a, you know, a complete structure in the end. Um, each just simply called after the seasons. But I want to do it so that if we're talking about time, we're really talking also about immediacy and, and, this, and the, the point at which you know, we realise via the seasons that we're in time so doubly because we know that time is passing and we're on the surface of time. But the seasons remind us at every point that, well, every autumn that you enter, you remember all the autumns. Mm. And you remember all the autumns that you haven't even had yet because they're ahead of us. And in fact, even, you know, even after we're gone from the earth, those autumns will still be coming. I mean, there's something about the seasons which dimensionally places us, opens time uh, dimensionally rather than on the surface. Mm. But yeah, I wanted the books also to be about immediacy. So if I said, could we publish them? If I wrote four books in four years, could we publish them every year, one every year? Mm. Um, and to my astonishment, they, they said yes at, at Penguin, at my, at my publishers at, at home. Uh, astonishment because it would take, I knew it would take a great deal of energy on behalf of the editor, the copy editors, the, 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 the printing process, the, everything about it would, would ask a great deal. And, I, and people thought this was a good idea. Anyway, I started, I, I started to do these books. Um, and I began to write and Brexit started to happen at home, uh, you know, the, the referendum was coming up. So I thought, books are mysterious, you know, from your own writing, that the books which we are meant to be writing tell us we are meant to be writing them at the time mm. that we're meant to be writing them, and they won't come at any other time, and they, they won't be moved, they are stubborn, and you have... To, isn't that right? <laughs> yeah. It's very right, yeah. exactly. Um, so I was stuck with this uh, structure which was about the contemporary, at a point when the contemporary was... And Metamorphing, metamorphosing in front of our eyes. Um, um, so then I began to think perhaps I was mad and shouldn't do this because it was going to be too difficult and risky to, to... to write so close to the edge when things were so unstable and so volatile. Mm. Um, and then my partner's cousin, who is also a writer at home, her name is Olivia Lang, um, came round to our house and she brought with her uh, a photograph of one of our cats, long dead, that I had sent her 20 years ago. 
and, and written something on the back, you know, uh, something I thought was charming at the time. Uh, I, you know, I would so like to write some books about the seasons. I do so love them. You know, so. <laughs> Twenty years ago, so then I had this. I knew that I should be confident in it because I thought, okay, so whatever it is that I want to write by do, by using this structure has been in me for 20 years, mm. one way or another. So, okay, so I, I went with it. So all those reasons, the, 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 the long time, the short time, the, the immediate, the dimension. So I actually just heard an interview with you, a podcast, in an interview with, with Olivia, Olivia mm. Lang, mm. Uh, where you were talking about winter. Mm. And I guess that, and here you'll be talking mostly about autumn, but I guess you're right now writing Spring. I haven't started yet. No. I'm, I'm, I know. Do you think all authors lie about how far they are in their books and how much they're working? <laughs> I think Joyce Carol Oates said that. But you're, you're actually not. Yeah, she said all authors lie about how far they've gotten. Just like we lie about, or people generally you know lie about working that? out. It's, but you said it's you have. Because haven't. Joyce Carol never stops writing, so I'm, I'm, I can't imagine that she would ever be lying about it because wherever no. she is, she's really far into it. She's, all, she's always. I know, she's, that's what I'm thinking. But I'm thinking that you're far into spring, but you haven't. It makes me no. feel good, actually, that you're. No, I haven't even begun. I haven't dared. What? When is your deadline? Well, the, deadline is, the deadline for spring is December. Um, and that's oh, a long. You have plenty. I have plenty of time. Of time. <laughs> you have plenty of times. <laughs> she said it. She knows. No, you um, do. No, I, you I, do. I, I, in for these books, I have to trust. I have plenty of time because they're yes. coming on their own terms, and I can't start to work on spring until um, until I'm getting close to spring when it will be published as well. I, and it, 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 the deadline oh. is very important in in this case. So when is the perfect time to start no, uh, a book when you know the deadline when is looming? Does it? How much does it have to loom before you actually? Oh, it has to loom really tall. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, about the size of the Radisson blue, which, is, which that's a deadline. That'll that'll make you right. Uh, yeah. That, um, tallest building. Talking about looming. Yeah. Well, I don't really know if trees loom. Do trees loom? They there bloom. are a lot of trees. Definitely the trees bloom. bloom. Yeah. Can they loom high? No, then maybe they can't loom. I suppose it depends whether you're in a very but dark trees, forest. Trees, trees. Yes. Yeah. But trees yeah. are so important in in autumn. Yeah. Trees are important in other books you've written too. One of my favorite books is Artful. And um, uh, one of the, the main favorite books is that right? Yeah. <laughs> one of the main characters there is a uh, I forget the word, a name she knows about. She's a tree surgeon. She's a she, yeah, tree, she, tree yeah. surgeon. Yes, yeah, that's tree surgeon. Yes. yes. But why why because the first image is really one of the first images in autumn mm. is of the well, we have the old man, Daniel, yes. who is 101 years old. And the book is really about... My daughter asked me, what is the book about? And I, I, and I wanted Bless to start you. talking about Brexit and everything. And I thought, no, I can't say that. And I said, well, the book is about an old man. He's 101 years old. And he's, he's lifelong friends with a very young yes. woman who, who he befriended when she was just a child. Like, yes. Her, yeah, mm. but but in the in the very beginning we meet Daniel and he is sleeping because he's a hundred years old and he's uh, sleeping a lot in mm. in this care facility that he is and he's he's dreaming and uh, that he is might be d dead. Yes, it's an image of and and the first image of death is really quite lovely. He dresses in leaves. He can run. He can see. Um, he, yes. he, girls notice him, yeah. uh, and that's why he dresses in leaves. So it's a kind of a paradise 
found, regained image, but, and he's on a shore, he washes up on a shore, but then the shore slightly changes into something very nightmarish, um, yes. so a paradise lost, truly with, with, with images of, of dead people washing up on the shore, mm. dead children, dead parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have this, first this image of, of, of paradise, of, of something very ancient, of a of mythic and then very contemporary mm. and he and he's dressed in leaves he's dressed mm. in leaves did that image was that what you started the book with i stole that image from you homer st- yes <laughs> from the odyssey um i stole it because um uh because all books are made of books mm-hmm. um and oh, i started this book by writing about a woman walking along a fence you know really tall chain link fence mm. and being followed along the inside by a man in a car who wants her to step away from the fence, even though it's, she's on common land. I started with that image. But which is an image that's still in the book. Which is an image that's still in the book, The yes. mother of Elizabeth, yes. yes. So I started that. And at this, the back of my head, there was this man, and he was old, and he was really sweet-natured and intelligent, and he was small, and he was waiting. And I was ignoring him, and I knew his name. Characters come fully formed, really, um, and, and wait for us to find them, I think. Do you think that sounds true for, for the most part? Um, and so he was standing at the back of my head and I was ignoring him and <sighs> writing a book that I thought was a different book altogether and was nothing to do with him. And he just pushed forward. And I knew at some point there was no getting away from this man, this voice, this f- sense of holding the century. Um, so I went with it. And the first thing that happened, the well, first thing that came out of him was the Odyssey. Mm. He, um, it is a paradise image, um, and it's also a mythic image. Mm. Um, in uh, the Odyssey, Odysseus washes up on the shore. He has got nothing left. He's got no clothes left. He's naked. He's lost everything. He's been shipwrecked. He's been tossed about by the sea until he is wounded and bruised. Um, and he arrives on the shore of Nausicaa's kingdom, and he hides himself in a bush mm. um, and sees some girls up the the beach and he is embarrassed by his nakedness which mm-hmm. again links to all sorts of old stories and mm-hmm. ideas of paradises um, and dresses himself in leaves and then Nausicaa the princess sees him welcomes him and says come with us I'm going to take you home to my father's kingdom we're going to wash your feet I'm going to feed you something and then you can tell us your story I've been rereading the Odyssey and I've been re-discovering the, the, the core of the Odyssey, which is the notion all the way through the journey, wherever you end up, of hospitality, of the welcoming of the stranger to the shore and of how much we rely as human beings on the welcoming of the stranger to the shore. Mm. Um, so he gets tossed up uh, on, a, on a beach like so many people right now in the world are being tossed up on beaches. Um, if they're lucky, they get to the beach. Um, and it's a question of that, the, the core of the oldest story being hospitality the core of the oldest story being a welcoming to whatever shore you end up landing on and a welcoming for not just you, but also your story. Um, so that seemed to me to be, well, it's, it's one of the most important stories we can tell right now. Um, I went to see the great John Berger speak uh, in uh, London about a year before he died. Um, the last time I saw, I saw him and he... Um, there was a journalist in the audience who said to him, Mr. Berger, you wrote A Seventh Man about economic migrancy, one of the most important books about the 1970s and the shift in the world. What can you tell us about the shift of people across the surface of the world right now? And Berger, 
said nothing for about a minute and a half and held his head and then said, I have been thinking about the storyteller's responsibility to be hospitable. It's brilliant. It's right. Every story holds on one side or another a welcoming. The telling of it and the listening of it, both are kinds of welcoming. And if we don't know what to do with that, then as, hum as human beings, we're, we're lost, actually. We're lost because our, our stories become worthless if they're not welcome or if we can't welcome the story of someone else. It's, and I think that at that point when Daniel Gluck, the main character in Autumn, pushed to the fore, um, the country I'm, I live in was coming apart at the seams, was becoming divisive in a way which I've never seen in my lifetime, uh, and which now is an international divisiveness and dividedness. Mm -hmm. um, but we, were, uh, you know, we felt it very locally right then, that May, June, April, May, June of 2016. And so the question of hospitality and the question of divides are the two things which are kind of at, at, at the core of the book, I think. Mm. Mm. Yes, you, you've said uh, in one interview when you spoke about hospitality, actually, you said something, uh, if we become binary, we lose. We lose hope. We do. So is um, the lack of hospitality is the opposite of hope, would you say? Um, the the meaninglessness of story is the opposite of hope. The the the, the meaninglessness, meaninglessness of, of story. The, the the ways in which what, we carry ourselves. What is the meaninglessness the, of story? The, the, what do you the mean point by at that? which you block someone else so that it does not matter. So that I mean, the, again, it makes me think of people uh, people I know who are who are uh, coming to the country and who's who sit in a room with somebody and somebody reduces their life story to an A4 page. Mm. In fact, less than that. In fact, it has to be less than an A4 page, and it has to be something like three hundred words. This is what I mean. I mean, it, and every single one of us knows that that isn't what we are, who we are in the world. Doesn't Rilke say something that we people oh. distinguish too sharply? Oh. Only angels know. Uh, angels don't know if we are in life or death or something. He says something beautiful about distinguishing. We distinguish too sharply. And I, I feel that so much of this book is about oh, that's beautiful. not distinguishing. Yeah. Not uh, categorizing. Not categorizing. The, the whole idea of being in the in-between, mm. you know, that the binary is that you are either on this side or on the other side, and that the sort of the, the, the resilience in this book comes from wanting to be um, in the in-between, in the, the, the non-category. You have now given me a terrible quandary, because for spring, I'm trying to think how I can work Rilke, Oh, I'll give you the exact Into quote. the book. <laughs> and, now, and I've been thinking, oh, I can't. And I, I don't see a, a way in which he's going to be part of the story. And now, I, now uh, because you've said I'll, that, I'll find, he's, he's, back, he's back in my... I've thought maybe of I Rilke all the time with um, Autumn. <laughs> yeah. And especially because of that. Well, partly because he writes about things. Mm. And Autumn so we have to, we have to take is the very much as given. Yeah. about things. Yeah. Um, and also this idea of people make the mistake of distinguishing too, uh, or categorizing too sharply. Well, the category has never done us any favors as human beings. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that if we, we all, we need to, all we need to do is look to recent history to see the ways in which uh, we can call it category or we can call it fascism, but either way it becomes ex the exclusion which happens between a them and an us. I think probably is the point of fascism. I think it's how fascism works. It goes, we can decide this about you. 
at that point, then we've stopped being, you know, human beings. I think because we have stopped other people being human beings. And there is and there is this core, I think, all the way through these these books, which are books which look divided, but which won't be divided with any luck. Well, I hope it will hold the... The, the books look divided, but... The, yes, because autumn, you know, we think yes. autumn, winter, spring, summer, as if they're separate things. They're not separate things. It, it, you, you know, living in Norway, and I know, being Scottish, that summer is full of winter, you know, and, and, and there's no spring, and then suddenly it's autumn, so, but the, and all the seasons hold all the seasons. So uh, the, the very notion of there being a divided year is a useful yes. thing for us to move time well, by, yes. and obviously it has its markers, but it shares, and it's... And we talk so much about spring in winter, yeah, yeah. because we long for it, and yeah. then... When summer has just arrived, we start thinking, oh, it's almost over. Yeah. So it's... And I get that sense of the sort of flowing cyclical uh, already... That's the hope. In, That's the hope. In yeah. autumn mm-hmm. and, the, and, and the in-between. Um, you know, I, there, there's a beautiful quote, and I want you to... Because there, there is... Uh, Elizabeth, the young woman, who we meet also as a young girl... Mm-hmm. Um, She's reading um, Brave New World. I mean, she's reading a lot. Because, and, and Daniel is wonderful. The 101-year-old man, he is, uh, who's only 80 when she meets him, uh, he has a wonderful greeting. Mm. He doesn't say, hello, how are you? He says, hello, what are you reading? Mm. And that's his sort of greeting. It reminds mm. me of uh, Dylan Thomas uh, or something like that with... Uh, that's that um, in a Christmas, uh, Christ- Charles Christmas in Wales. How lovely! Uh, and the woman comes down, to, and there's a there's a big fire, yeah. and the firemen come, and uh, the, the the matriarch of the, f- the the family comes down and says, "Would you like something to read rather than would you like a cup of tea?" And so he rem- that reminded hospitality. me hospitality. Yes, hospitality <laughs> exactly. And 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 it just reminded me so. Um, Beautifully of that of the of the greeting of you know would you how, what are you reading are you hello reading? what are you reading yeah, what are you reading, what are you reading? Um, right now right now uh, I uh, have been reading endless Muriel Spark novels Muriel mm. Spark mm. only yes. the best one of the best novelists of the 20th century ever um, and I am right now on the on the plane I was reading a book by James Baldwin called uh, The Fire Next Time mm. do you know it oh my God it's so Buy it, read it. It's it's two you, letters written, one to his nef- nephew, uh, his child nephew, and one to the world um, about civil rights. In, and it's just, it's incandescent, beautiful. It seems that the relationship between mm. these two main mm. characters mm. in the book, the young... What are you reading? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been reading and reading and reading, actually, oh, Ali Smith, <laughs> uh, in preparation for our talk... But at night, I'm actually reading Thomas Bernard, um, and uh, right now I'm reading Concrete, and I've been thinking about, is there anything that binds Ali Smith, who writes so much about joy, and writes about joy in an interesting way? I was going to say, because this is partly an apocalyptical work, And it refers to, I can't say that word again, (laughs) apocalyptical works like Brave New World. But it is the most gentle, tender apocalyptical work Mm. I've ever read. It's it's so much also about joy. And, of course, Thomas Bernard is is about rage. 
and there's a there's a quote in in the very end of Autumn where you talk about the artist or you write about uh, yes. the artist Pauline Boti, Boti mm. who is central to to this uh, book mm. and and about joy and that women's joy painted or mm. women's joy men don't want to know about it or they don't want to hear about it they mm. don't know anything about it mm. and that women's joy is something quite um not controversial but 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 um lost lost and un- unarticulated yes. is yes. what pauline booty said and that's a that's a that's a, a practically direct lift from uh, one of the few texts that she left to us before she died very young. Boti, Pauline Boti was a, the, yes. the one and only, pretty much, UK female pop artist. Um, she wasn't just a female pop artist of immense talent and vivacity and political heft. She was also a dancer, an actress, a figure who'd spoke on the radio before most young women did about gender and class and politics and um, and what it meant to be female in uh, 1960, 1958, 59-60. She began a body of work which was going to be stunning and then she died really young, really tragically, and her work disappeared and only has really just been reclaimed and refound in the past decade mm. or so in mm. the UK. And this is criminal because her work is just stunning. It is so... Uh, you, you know, you go near it and an electric charge comes off it. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. It's, it's, she's so intelligent, so affectionate, so full of warmth, so full of intelligent, kind of cl- every, every mark she makes is a, is a clever warmth. You know, it's, she's clever warmth. clever warmth. She's just extraordinary artist. Anyway, and finally, she's also Boti's, a character in this. She's a character, uh, she's in, autumn, character in your book. Also. Precisely yes. because uh, I was thinking about autumn, and I was thinking about the notion of autumn, and how she, how how to, uh, to to sum up what autumn means to us. And of course, you can't if you if you know English poetry, which I do, um, you can't avoid John Keats when you think about autumn. And Keats, a working class boy who changed the face of lyric poetry. Um, uh, two centuries ago uh, in the UK. Very unlikely thing to happen, and he did it, and also died very, very young of TB. Was such a bright energy, such a... when you know, the, Again, the same electricity of energy comes off his work, and so the short life produced this thing which will never stop, and an eternal delight of energy comes off the work. Doesn't matter, lived or died, what the age was, Eternal delight of energy comes off the work. And, I f- I, and then I saw a work by an artist I'd never seen before, Pauline Boti, who's she, a, a UK pop artist who's female, I didn't know about her. Why do all these pictures end at 1966? Oh. Hmm. And then there's the story, the sad story of the life. And hmm. then there's the work. And the work gives off such a charge of life, energy, vivacity, possibility, understanding that there was no avoiding it. But then there was a question about, well, there's a, the, I don't know how many of you here will know about a thing which happened in the UK in the 1960s, which is called the Profumo mm. Affair, mm. the Profumo Scandal. Um, one of Boti's most famous paintings, which went missing and which has never been found, God knows where it is, was a picture of Christine Keeler, the model who became the centre of the Profumo affair and, uh, and kind of well, became a distraction, actually, from the lies that were being told in Parliament um, 
because she was very beautiful and because the papers were full of, you know, the seediness and the beauty of a young girl who was involved in a sex scandal. That was one of the pictures. So I was thinking, how on earth does this fit with what I'm trying to write about? Mm, a sex scandal, which means that lies are being told. Lies being told in Parliament, and there's a distraction. Why would, why would that be anything to do with what I'm writing about? Yeah. <laughs> and then I realised why... We, again, it was one of the givens. When you're working, when you know, you know, you know, because I know you do, because I know your books, you know what it's like when you are running with a story. You take everything that it gives you, and you know that somehow, somewhere, you have to find a way to understand where it goes and why it's there, and how to work with it, and how to, how to run with it. And that's, that's what the kind of hospitality, too, I guess, that the writer has Ex to be. Yes, we have to be open. Completely. Hospitable to wide open all, all characters, all books, all, all voices. Is it? Yes. Does that that make sense? Doesn't it to you? Yeah, I know it does from your books. <laughs> but I, but I, but but also, I'm, I mean, I am in, I am actually in awe of Lynn's work because it, she is so beautifully merciless. I think Grace is one of the best books I have ever read for a thank, for a, thank, mer a mercilessness which thank, which thank you, you never compromise on. Thank you, Ali. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you're making me lose my bearings. Oh is no, that, no, stop. no, no! Is, is it good? Word? Is it good? No, I think it, uh, it's. No, good. I mean you but, don't but want, we're to, gonna go want to lose. Get it. back yeah. to. Um, okay. um, <laughs> what I wanted to ask, because the the book Autumn yeah. opens with with. Um, with a wink to association directly to Dickens. Yes. It was the worst of times, it was the best of times. But you write, it was the worst of times, it was the worst of times. So it's, it, it has, and it, you're writing about really the worst of times. I mean, the book is, is also, the novel is full of fences and, and, and non-attention to language. I mean, it's just mm. sort of the, the, the simplifying of everything, the categorizing of everything. Mm. But then there is this, when you talked about Pauline Boti just now, I mean, you talked about just the joy and the electricity and the, and the wisdom and the, yeah. and the delight and the surge. Um, there is that in the novel. So how do you manage to write a novel that is, in fact, so joyous... And, and dark or apocalyptical at the same time. I mean, when you read George Orwell or any other, uh, or Huxley or, or Margaret Atwood, I mean, these novels that are, you know, dark times and or uh, the end of the world type novels, which, which are becoming very popular now, they are, they are very dark. I yes. mean, they're heavy, they're leaden, they're... Um, but yours is just... It just, it just brims with... with with life force and joy and beauty. How, there's, um, so there's a real juxtaposition there. How do you, how do, you do that? Okay. <laughs> when I was writing about winter, um, and I, I'm answering this via Dickens, who, and Dickens is, uh, is a, a writer who is, uh, I think, holding me steady through this, this quartet. I mean, he's helped me steady through my life. Through but your li I mean, yeah. he's so central also in, in Artful, I, among others. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, so I, the Dickens has a kind of scaffold. I was reading uh, A Christmas Carol, uh, the, the book about Scrooge and, um, and how mean he is, and there's a single phrase that Dickens has as a kind of throwaway phrase. Uh, Scrooge is looking at whether or not he'll light a candle, and he decides, no, no, he won't, because darkness is cheap. 
And I think that when Dickens says darkness is cheap, he's alerting us to mm. the special quality of lightness rather than just light, and the, 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 the richness of lightness rather than the cheapness. And to mm. go to the dark, he's suggesting, even in that throwaway phrase, is a kind, and you know it when you read Dickens, because he too can go to the, the abyss. He can go to the abyss, he can stare and he can say, see the things, he can tell you about the things. And because he's telling you, something hopeful happens. Darkness is cheap. Go to, you know, somehow always light the dark, one way or another. I mean, especially, in, and also working on winter, on the, on the very notion of the season, the winter season, to realise that the season pivots on light, that actually the light starts to come back at the centre of winter, is mm -hmm. the moment when light, when it turns, when it changes, when light will begin to push back against the dark. So there, was, there were those two things. But also, do you know, and I wonder what you think about this, I'd love to know what you think about this, I think the novel is a hopeful form. I think as a literary form, the actual form works to be about continuance, to be bigger than the individual, to be bigger than our, 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 our preoccupations, whether they're personal or political or you know, community of a particular time. It is bigger than them, and it shows us ourselves in time on a continuum in a way that makes me think of Virgulant, actually, uh, on his deathbed, saying... Virgulant? Yes. Ver yeah. Mm -hmm. Ver How do I say it? Uh, no, you Virgulant. said it fine. Okay. I was just, um, I was just saying, saying as he dies, next year's roses kiss them for me. Mm. That thing, the novel does that. It takes, it's bigger than us. Um, the short story is, is really about our, our brevity. But the novel is about the world. And it's about so social living. And it's about a structure which holds more than us. More than this time. This, it's about this time, but it holds... It holds time, you know, and it opens to time. So there's something about even working in the novel form that I think is a gift to anyone looking into the dark times, which, well, like I said, they're darker than they've ever been in my lifetime, and they haven't even started to get dark yet. So you do, tr you do believe it is the worst of times, the I do worst believe of times. That, I do believe that in my lifetime there has never been such divisiveness, uh, either in the place I live or in the world in which I live. In the world mm. in which we all live, there has never been such a pushback of impossibilities one against the other without someone trying to find a way to solve this, which is human. So we have the divisiveness of who has money and who doesn't. We have the divisiveness of every fence that decides who can walk through that border or that fence. We have the drawing up of new borders. We have the, the decisions about categorizations of religion and ethnicity, about who gets to do what. Uh, on a on a massive scale in the world in which we you know which is which we have we I have not seen in my lifetime I'm 55 we have not seen that happen um, and now it is happening in a way which rings bells which go way back into history never mind just to the last century um, and uh, alongside that darkness we have the mass movement of so many people who belong on this world as much as every single one of us belongs on this world who need somewhere to be on the world, who decides whether or not we solve that. So the big question is that, is, to me is that, is the question we started talking about. How, you know, how do we go about that as human beings? How do we, how do we be, even begin to understand how to live in this world while making it livable in the world? Mm. I wonder if you can um, read a little bit. Yeah, sure. We talked about... Um, Which one would you like? 
<clears throat> well, yep. Uh, page fifty-six. Page fifty-six. Okay. And then we'll. Um, and I, then you'll um, do a little reading. I will. After that too. Okay. Sure. So. So okay, this is so. this is this is Elizabeth's mother, who is also a central character, and a wonderful mm. uh, be um, sort of playing a supporting supporting role. Uh, but she's a she's a lovely character. She's a, yeah, she's, she's a. It's her speaking here, Elizabeth's mother. In, in in Elizabeth's head, she is a kind of comedy character. In Elizabeth's mother's head, she's not a comedy character. She's her mother. And this is a wonderful mother-daughter relationship where you kind yeah. of get the sense of exactly that. Precisely. Okay. I'm tired, her mother says. It's only two miles, Elizabeth says. That's not what I mean, she says. I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of the way it makes things spectacular that aren't and deals so simplistically with what's truly appalling. I'm tired of the vitriol. I'm tired of the anger. I'm tired of the meanness. I'm tired of the selfishness. I'm tired of how we're doing nothing to stop it. I'm tired of how we're encouraging it. I'm tired of the violence there is and I'm tired of the violence that's on its way that's coming that hasn't happened yet. I'm tired of liars. I'm tired of sanctified liars. I'm tired of how those liars have let this happen. I'm tired of having to wonder whether they did it out of stupidity or did it on purpose. I'm tired of lying governments. I'm tired of people not caring whether they're being lied to anymore. I'm tired of being made to feel this fearful. I'm tired of animosity. I'm tired of pusillanimosity. I don't think that's actually a word, <laughs> Elizabeth says. I'm tired of not knowing the right words, her mother says. Elizabeth thinks of the bricks of the old broken up War pillbox under the water, the air bubbles rising from their pores when the tide covers them. I'm a brick underwater, she thinks. Her mother, sensing her daughter's attention wandering, sags momentarily towards the fence. And Elizabeth, who is tired of her mother already, and she's only an hour and a half into the visit, points to the little clips placed at different positions along the wire. Careful, she says. I think it's electrified. Mm. Mm. Do you want me to go on reading? Well, I, I'm going to... I'll ask you okay. a little bit of a question and then I want you to read a little more sure. after. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that, that Elizabeth's mother says she's tired of is, is I'm tired of the lying. We say that we live in a post-truth world, whatever that means. And just li means, just means lies. Post-truth just yes. means lies, basically. <laughs> it's like... It does. It does. It's what Bushy does. It's lies. And Daniel warns Elizabeth uh, already when she's quite young yeah. about the dangers of lying and how it how it hurts, how it can hurt, how it can make do damage. So there, there is mm. in autumn, there is a lot of discussion about lies and truth. On the one hand, but then on the other hand, Daniel also tells Elizabeth or when they talk about the, the sort of joy and the excitement and the importance of being able to make up and to t tell stories, mm. because stories, of course, are often made up. Yeah. And, you know, we can mm. make up characters, we can make up stories, they even start telling stories together, and Elizabeth says, no, you can't put, you know, something like that in this story, because that wouldn't happen. And Daniel says, well, of course I can, because you welcome anyone... Mm -hmm who comes along into your story. Uh, but what is the difference? And Elizabeth asks Daniel that question. What is the difference between, I can't remember the exact quote, but you know, between 
lying and making up stories? And why is one good and the other bad? Mm. Well, I've been reading Muriel Spark. Yes. <laughs> uh, who says to Frank Kermode, the critic, at a very early stage in her writing her novels, she says, I am writing fiction because I am interested in absolute truth. Mm. <laughs> and she's right. She says, you know, you can't go saying Goldilocks and the Three Bears is a pack of lies. She says, that'll really upset people. <laughs> but, you know, is what she says. And I borrow that for yes, autumn. Yes, you did. <laughs> what I think myself is that... Uh, the difference between fiction and lies is truth. And lies set out to subvert our way to the truth. They purposefully go out of our way to block the truth. That's why we tell them lies. We tell lies so people won't get to the truth. We tell fictions mm. to get to truths that are difficult to talk about or are difficult to articulate or we haven't got to yet ourselves or we don't know how to speak about. Like when Ezra Pound, the poet, says, a man comes back to his community, he knows something's happened to him, but he doesn't know how to say it, so he says, I turned into a tree. <laughs> that, that thing, the mythic thing, there are, our need and our link to the ways in which we tell stories um, is umbilical to the truth. Spark, for instance, is a wonderful writer about lies and truth. Um, she uh, writes uh, one of her one of the one of the books which I'm most amazed by that that Spark managed to write was is a book called The Abbess of Crewe, which uh, was a book written while Watergate was still on the front pages, which is about Watergate, except. It's not about Watergate, it's about a bunch of nuns in an abbey who are having an election and the walls of the abbey are bugged and the trees in the avenue are bugged and the nuns are power struggling, power gaming between them. And it's about what the truth is, what lies are, how you pretend to uh, pretend innocence, how you form innocence, how you form stories, the moralities of art, as it were. And there are, there are moralities of art. There are. It's, it, and, and, and Spark's whole... Spark's whole what, what are the moralities The moralities of art, of art are... What what's exciting about it is that the Abyss of Crew in the end is so bad and so wicked and so evil and so light with it that she can simply excite you by talking about how beautiful the word wrongdoing is so that you forget about wrongdoing. Mm. You read the novel and you think you know exactly what wrongdoing is, but you also know that there are people who can make you forget about it by the ways in which they'll tell you about it. So she goes, wrongdoing, oh, it sounds like gong of doom, wrongdoing, wrongdoing. And she goes off on a kind of poetic, rhythmic uh, riff on the very word. And you know... Two things, reading this, you know, there are people who avoid wrongdoing so beautifully, and we know now how to see them, and you can also watch someone do it. Um, and we also know that there is wrongdoing, and she's doing it. And there's a, there's a key a, a kind of moment in that novel where you realise that you have been given a key, and you've been given a key to demystification of any power structure who uses its fictions on you, mm. because that's where the morality of art comes into play. Our, our ability to analyse, our ability to see how the story is made, to look at the ways in which the story works on us, or we work the story on others, or the ways in which the manipulations of narrative are used on us, for us, against us. How what are you reading? It's the key to everything. To what read. you're reading is yeah. the key to everything? Yeah. 
to read, to read. Uh, in, in, people, English, in English, you, you read people. But not, uh, and then you mean more than just than books. Reading, everything, everything reading, is reading. Everything. I mean, I, I mean, uh, I'm going to now everything is translation. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to now just point to my, my translator who's sitting in the front row, Merita Olsen. Everything is translation. Everything is a kind of translation and everything is a kind of rereading or retelling. And I am bloody lucky that Merita is my translator in, it, in Norwegian. I wanted to ask you about that and also ask you about uh, what you just said. Uh, uh, Merita Olsen has done a, a mm. beautiful translation of of this and other of your books, really, because I had to check several times. I read it in English, but I had to check, well, how does she do this? How does she do this? Because there's so many... There's such an attention to language and, and, uh, and a play, playfulness in the language. Um, yes. But she does it. But what do you... Because, I mean, translation is everything, as you say, and everything is translation. Yes. Um, uh, it drove Holderlin mad. I mean... Uh, translations can uh, drive a person what mad. Is, if you, I mean, how, do you work with your own trans? Do you work with your translators? No. Do you know? Um, I, do you? I, I do and I don't, but I, normally I just get maybe a sheaf of questions from someone. Maybe there'll be three questions, maybe 15 from different countries. And Are I, you worried? I, I simply answer you the worry? questions. No, I'm, I'm, I, I think translation is the whole point. I think a book doesn't exist until it's been translated. Um, I think it's the whole point of writing. Yeah, I really do. I really think a book enters the language and then enters the languages. And then out it goes in whatever form it takes, in whatever language a translator gives it and knows how to reproduce or produce anew the book. But with Moretta, the, the, one of the worst days of my life was when I had an email from Moretta saying... Uh, uh, I can't do this one. It was for there but for the a single line in the email. I just, you've beaten me, Ali. I can't do it. And the next day I had an email saying, I've got it. <laughs> I've worked it out. Now I know what to do. And then I was, because it was, it was the, my, my soul dipped at the very notion that Moretta knows, who always knows what to do with the books in a way which I, 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 I live off, actually. It's wonderful to know that that is possible, that, 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 that I'm, 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 I'm indebted to what I know are, super, are just are, are creations for the first time in Norwegian of the books that I write. Mm. Yeah. So many of your books are about young, feisty girls. Young, what can I rather, say? What, <laughs> <laughs> really smart, bookish, feisty, Do you think people say to Martin Amos, a lot of your books are about really old, balding men? <laughs> Well, they don't, you do could they? say they about Dag Solstad, who's Norwegian, or even uh, Thomas Barnard, who I'm reading right now. Is Thomas Barnard. Most books are about older, really grumpy, angry men. Uh, but a lot of your books really have characters who are these well-read, young, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, super smart, super feisty, super... Um, you know, I, I don't even know the right English word because they're kind of in opposition to everything, too. Okay, I mean, rebels? Rebels, yeah. young rebels. Um, okay. What is it about? Is there something about that? I would ask, if he was alive, uh, Thomas Bernard, I would ask, why, why do you always write about really old, angry, grumpy men rage, raging about the world? So why, why so many times is there this young, rebellious... I, well, for, first of all, I've realized what the thing I have in common with Thomas Bernard is while we're sitting here. It's that we both hate prizes. 
He wrote, he wrote a very good, very funny essay about how much he hated prizes. Um, and even I, the ones he got? Even the ones he got. In fact, it was a prize speech um, about how much he hated, <laughs> he hated prizes. <laughs> we, have, we have that definitely in common. Um, it's good, isn't it? Um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I, I can't answer why that, that's one of my subjects, but I can say that it's not all of my subjects. And, no. uh, and that it's interesting that people are drawn towards those characters in my books and say, this is what you do, although I do lots of other things. Partly that tells me that at this time, right now in life, those are the things which we are drawn towards, we are magnetized towards, or we want those characters. People often say, you do really clever children. You know, I'm like, yeah, but I, you know, that'll be in a book where there are several other chapters about other people who aren't children at all. But, the, you know, but because people are pulled towards or magnetized okay. towards a certain thing in a certain culture, uh, a certain time and culture, I, I wonder if that's why. I don't know. Um, okay, well, you do, mm, yeah. yeah, go on. Go, no, you go on. Um, par partly, um, a, it's a source of endless story as well, because it's, it is, it's, the, it's, the, it's the point, particularly girls who are in their, kind of at the point of the teens when mm -hmm. uh, things begin to codify and to fix in, mm -hmm. and where the narratives are supposed to become fixed or become you know, much less malleable than they are when you're a child, partly because of the grey area that morality becomes when you are a teenager in, in the way that it hasn't been as a child when things have felt very fixed, blacks and whites uh, of, of rights and wrongs have seemed fixed. But there's, there's a point, it, it always makes me think of Carson McCullers writing Member of the Wedding, um, a book about a, a child, in that, and in that, I mean, it's one of the, the most politically adept books about race uh, written in the last, in the 20th century in, in America. Um, but people say it's a story about a teenage girl. Mm. It's about colour. It's about who belongs. It's about who gets to belong. It's about who doesn't get to belong. It's about exclusivity. It's about what a society does and where it places people. No, it's just about a teenage girl sort of coming of age. Do you think that when we write about teenage young girls, or even girls at all, uh, young women, that it will be more easily dismissed? Or uh, more easily I actually don't categorized? Care. No. I actually don't care. I mean, but even no, no, if you no, don't care, but no. is it like that? I don't care. I, because because uh, you know, the stories are out there, and the stories will keep coming. And we will find the stories if we need those stories, and we want those stories. This room is full of people. Uh, um, you know, so a, something works, something happens, something happens when the story goes out there. Also, many of your stories are about mourning, or about a sort of mourning energized by life, a kind of, not a joyous mourning, but a, a mourning, again, that word fierce comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, there are ghosts in your book. In, in Autumn, there's no ghost, but he is 101 years old, but he's definitely alive. Mm -hmm. uh, I was telling my daughter, as I said, about the story of the book, and she kept saying, oh, so he dies, mm. uh, the 101. That's what it's about. And I said, no, actually, he lives. That's oh what it's about. But, um, but, but many of your books are about a death, um, a sudden death often, and about mourning. Um, there's no, there's no is, other way. There's, is, there's is no that a better, fruitful place to write? There's, a place from There's no better, better way to realize that we're alive <clears throat> than to remember that we won't be and to know that, you know, that we go. Um, it's, it's one of the energizers. 
uh, of our lives. Oh, God, um, a, about a month ago, six weeks ago, one of my brothers died. Um, and I know, no, I know, and I know, you know, you, you know, you, you know so vividly, you remember so viscerally why we're alive, what happens, why it matters, what life is, and how we will all die. Because we will all die, and there's a mor- there's a morality in art. If you like, uh, there's there's the there's a, the notions of uh, sequence and consequence in our lives. If we're ever going to tell any story, a story always has an end of a kind. We, we will we all do die, there, but there's nothing like it to remind us to let us see the 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 the, the, the life force that is in all of us. Which we forget in the days as they pass, as the things, you know, kind of, as we do the the daily things, which simply become the days, which pass as they go, and then we remember, and we flare alive again, and we are here again, and we're present in the moment, and in ourselves. Fierce, as it were. Mm. Can you read for us? Yeah, sure. Time and time again, even in the increased sleep period, with his head on a pillow and his eyes closed, hardly here, he does it, what he's always been able to do, endlessly charming, Daniel, charmed life. How does he do it? She'd brought the chair from the corridor, she'd shut the door to the room, she'd opened the book she bought today, she'd started to read from the beginning, quite quietly, out loud. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. The words had acted like a charm. They'd released it all in seconds. They made everything happening stand just far enough away. It was nothing less than magic. Who needs a passport? Who am I? Where am I? What am I? I'm reading. (laughs) Daniel lies there asleep, like a person in a fairy tale. She holds the open book at its beginning in her hands. She says nothing at all out loud. There was a time, she says inside her head, when I was very small, and my mother banned me from seeing you, and I did what she'd asked, but only for three days. By the morning of the third day, I knew for the first time that one day I would die. So, I blatantly ignored her. I went against her instructions. There was nothing she could do about it. It was only three days, and I prided myself on you not noticing or knowing about it at the time. But I want to apologize for not being here these last years. It's ten years in all. I'm really sorry. There wasn't anything I could do about it. I was hopelessly hurt about something stupid. Of course, it's possible that you didn't notice that absence either. Myself, I thought about you the whole time, even when I wasn't thinking about you. I thought about you. Silence from Elizabeth, except for the sound of her breathing. Silence from Daniel, except for the sound of his. Mm. It's a a final question, because I was thinking about this book as I was... I was coming here and I was thinking how much it is also a story, um, it is about, it's a love story, but it's a, 
it's a love story between this very young girl and a, and a 101-year-old man, or, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and when they first meet, he says to her, well, we've been lifelong friends. And, and the word love comes up sometimes, and he loved his sister, because it's also Daniel, it's a, it's a story of, of, of Daniel's sister mm. uh, who died in the war. Uh, Second World War, and then it's the story of his love for Pauline Boti, and then it's the story, the love story between these two friends, mm. the girl and the old man. Um, but it's a very different kind of love story. Would you agree that it is a love story, or it's a story about about love, or 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 a kind of love? Love is multiple, various, non-exclusionary takes all the forms, will not be corralled, will not be given a shape, uh, refuses to be fixed, uh, and in that way unfixes us. Thank God. Thank you very much, Ali Smith. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.